and gentlemen. Uh... Can I please have your attention? Oh, greetings, dear listeners. This is The Remnant with Jonah Goldberg, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. But as you have already discerned with your knowing ear, this is not Jonah Goldberg. This is Chris Steyerwalt. I am happy to be here uh, in Jonah's stead as he recuperates so that he can return to you with even greater dulcetness and even more magnificent uh, sonorous tones. Uh, And since I have a fully powered, fully operational Death Star at my disposal today, we will engage in uh, unapologetically rank punditry. And you know, Jonah often talks about how punditry being rank is not uh, a, uh, it's not a slur, it's not a slight against punditry, just that the punditry will be uncut and pure rank like an onion uh, that you can that it that it hits you just so. But what about the punditry itself? What about the purity of the punditry? And punditry, of course, is, as you people know, a public-facing kind of, and I will punch myself in the face immediately after I say this, a public-facing kind of intellectualism where people take disparate things, disparate ideas, things that they have observed and things observed by others to come up with explanation for why things are the way they are and why they are going to be a certain way in the future. And if you want it rank and you want it good, then you want David Drucker. Uh, There are many things that I can tell you about David Drucker. I can tell you about his fantastic pocket squares. The silks are that this David Drucker silks are better than the Kentucky Derby. Um, I can tell you how thrilled I am that he is my colleague at the dispatch now, uh, out, uh, in, uh, on the hustings, uh, following the candidates around, watching where the money goes, watching how they run. But I can also tell you that he is one of a absolutely dying breed. Uh, you may be the last of your species of the real kind of campaign reporter who wants to be there and see it. Uh, not shape it, not make it, but be there and see it. And it is a privilege to be talking with you today, my friend. Hello, David Drucker. Hey, Chris. Thanks so much. Glad to be here. That's a very, that's a very, da- that's a downbeat. After I, I, I built, I built you up like you were the secretariat of punditry. You're like, yeah, that's cool. I guess that'll be fine. No, that's the whole thing. I don't want to be the story, but I was going to say that, um, I aspire, I, I believe the remnant gives out what, like gold jackets. Is that something that you and you and Joan have discussed before? And like, if you, you're on so many times. So, so one of the big, I never told uh, Stephen Jonah this, but really I, I joined the dispatch thinking this will get me closer to the gold jacket. And so very pleased to be on the remnant. Do you have a count? Can you, can you tell us how many times you've remnantized? This is just number two, once with Jonah. And now oh. my second uh, jaunt around the sun is with you. And it's really fun. Anytime you and I get to sit down and talk politics, it's a it's a really good time. I'm always entertained, which I, I mean in the in the best way. And so, this is part of my job. That's <laughs> the beauty of doing what we do for a living. Is they're paying me to do something I would do for nothing. I mean, I can't afford to do it for nothing. Don't get any ideas. I was going to say. I hope Steve. I hope I hope Steve doesn't listen to this one. Then, um, okay. Uh, let's start with let's play a game. I'm going to lay out three different scenarios for the Republican nominating process. 
And I want you to tell me why they may be true and why they may be not true. And scenario one, we'll call Trump rolls. Donald Trump leads from pen to post. He is out in front the whole time. uh, And he, he does, he, he behaves just like an incumbent uh, and gets all the way through. Uh, What is the, what's the argument for that? What's the argument against that? Um, The argument for is that number one, um, he remains um, unique among candidates able to uh, satisfy, deliver the catharsis that Republican primary voters want, broadly speaking, number one. In other words, the way he riles up the media and Democrats and everybody that doesn't like him and the way he fights back against them, he just, he, he, he tickles the sweet spot for Republicans looking for catharsis. And catharsis is a big theme in, in today's Republican Party, uh, more so than winning. However, about winning, he has convinced uh, more than half of Republican primary voters that he didn't really lose in 2020, that he either outright didn't lose and it was stolen and rigged, as he says, as he claims, or that, okay, well, he lost, but it wasn't fair. It was twisted and, and the Democrats essentially cheated. So they won, but it wasn't a fair victory. And so normally when you get ousted, as a president, and it doesn't happen that often. It had been 35 years. It had been since Jimmy Carter that we had seen a president ousted. It had been since George Herbert Walker Bush that we had seen a president ousted. And this is how old I am, that I think that the old thing that happened was Carter and not uh, Papa Bush. Um, normally that happens to you and the party basically tells you, like, thanks for the memories, get lost. Uh, and then, you know, 20, 30, 40 years later, they come to appreciate you again and all the nice things you did, maybe. Um, but this didn't happen to Trump because he convinced half the party at least that he didn't actually lose. And then you finally will get to my point three here. Three points are enough for any of these scenarios is that um, he wins because no, uh, none of his Republican opponents actually try to beat him. They don't actually contrast themselves with him in the way that he does with them. Therefore, sending a signal to the Republican electorate that they're not real, real fighters, that they may be very nice people who are very accomplished, but they don't have what it takes to lead. And Trump, for all of his peccadillos and all of his faults, you know, when the stuff goes down, he's going to be a rock. He's going to lead. He's not going to be afraid. And that's what we need to win. And that's what we need to deal with these myriad threats, both domestic and international. And I really think it's just too bad, maybe, or maybe it's not too bad, but we'll just guess we'll have to stick with Trump. So that's why he wins. And this is the scenario in which he doesn't raise his he doesn't raise his ceiling, but doesn't need to uh, that. He keeps 30 to 40 percent of the Republican electorate consistently. Uh, The remaining half to two thirds is divvied up among several others. And that that carries him through Super Tuesday and blammo uh, onto the nomination, right? Correct. Um, now, why why does he not win? Well, because it is it turns out that at least one of his viable challengers for the Republican nomination does contrast him or herself with him. They do run against him. They still have a positive agenda. They're still future oriented. 
But when asked or when confronted, they take it to Trump and they remind voters that, well, we're we're thankful for the memories. We wish he would have won in 2020. But the truth is he didn't win or maybe maybe he should have won and it wasn't fair. But look, we just can't take any chances anymore. And here we have a fresh alternative face who's not in his 70s and a person that seems much more uh, positioned to beat Joe Biden in a general election. And, and, and this person, one of these people, wins Iowa, therefore puncturing the inevitability that many in our industry presumed with Trump once again. And once people see that somebody else can win and is winning, this person rolls into New Hampshire and wins again. And all of a sudden, people start to look around and they say, we don't actually have to stick with Trump. And in fact, maybe Trump isn't the best candidate. Uh, now, there, there are other factors here. Um, it's possible that the, the, the weight of Trump's ethical baggage finally um, sinks him to some measure that makes it easier. It's possible that uh, by the time we get to August, his poll numbers are still ahead, but more competitive with his challengers and he debates and people see on the debate stage um, what's likely to happen again if he has to debate Joe Biden again. Uh, but I, I think the number one reason why he ends up getting beat is once somebody's willing to contrast themselves with him, people realize they've been watching the same show for eight years and it really actually hasn't worked all that well for eight years, save for that first time. So this is a scenario in which uh, a combination of effective uh, advocacy by other Republicans combined with external effect, uh, external events uh, collude against Trump and his he gets closer to his floor and his floor is probably really more like 25 percent right of the hardcore all the way in never say die. Absolute. And that and that's that that uh, 10 or 15 percent of the electorate that is pro-Trump, but persuadable peels off. Yeah, that's correct. And look, I, I think what, you know, one of the things that I've learned um, initially in my travels and in my uh, conversations with Republican voters and Republican donors is that there is a larger appetite, I think, than people realize for somebody who can accomplish the best parts of the Trump agenda, which so many voters appreciate on the Republican side, without the the baggage, without the challenges that come with Trump the man. In other words, I think a lot of Republican voters would like to see somebody that tells them, all right, you're going to fight just as hard as Trump. You're going to pursue the Trump agenda, but I'm not going to have to deal with the uncertainty, the chaos, the potential for losing the way I ultimately had to deal with Trump. You're also looking at Republican donors that are are behaving a lot differently this time around than 2016. You know, we're Jonah. Uh, Jonah. <laughs> <laughs> we're having this conversation in the middle of a week when um, Tim Scott, the South Carolina Senator has jumped into the race. Uh, Ron DeSantis, the Florida governor is about to jump into the race and other candidates are, are likely to get in at least, you know, a couple of them. And so people are looking at uh, the possibility that we're going to have another crowded field and it's all like 2016 all over again. And that's possible. And it's another reason why Trump could win. But 
when you look at how Republican donors who write big checks to super PACs and bundle money for campaigns are operating, it is much different. Many of them are keeping their powder dry. They're not getting behind their favorite candidate in the race. They're waiting to see who emerges as the most likely candidate to uh, block Trump. And they're willing to back that candidate even if they don't like that candidate. And I think that goes for a lot of Republican voters who would prefer not to have Trump. So instead of having a completely divided field, I think you're, you're likely to see or could see Republican voters, first of all, if they really love Trump, really love DeSantis, or really love somebody else, there's going to be a percentage of that. But there are going to be all these. Don't get ahead of Don't get ahead of our second scenario. OK, you have teed us up perfectly for scenario two. This is the uh, Don versus Ron, the Trump versus meatball uh, scenario. Uh, the race is really a two person race and that you have a bunch of uh, the B team hanging around, soaking up a couple of handful of points here or there, but that this really is already a two person race and that that's what we're going to see. What is the Drucker case in favor of that? And then give us the, the case against that. Well, the case. The case in favor is that Ron DeSantis offers Republican primary voters the best elements of the Trump agenda as far as Republican primary voters are concerned, and the best elements of Trump's willingness to fight, whether it's the media or the Democrats or other Republicans, which is key, uh, but in a package that they think is more viable in a general election. And even though DeSantis has a record, which often can be challenging, in this case, he has a record of doing many of the things that Republican primary voters like. And so he can run on that record. And, it, and he can run on a record of doing things they like that are very immediate, having to do with how he governed during the coronavirus pandemic, having to do with how he has navigated cultural politics in Florida. and. Then you take a look at all of the other Republican primary voters that definitely don't prefer Trump and DeSantis is not their cup of tea, but they say to themselves, you know, blocking Trump is my first priority. And if Ron DeSantis can put together a campaign that looks like it's viable versus Trump, maybe I stick, maybe I gravitate to him. Maybe I vote for him because it's the best way to do that. And so rather than support the person who most inspires me or the person I would prefer to have in a perfect world, I'll go with the one that can get the job done. And I think I've seen elements of that so far in talking to Republican donors, but also in talking to Republican primary voters, particularly in Iowa, where I think DeSantis's prospects are undervalued at the moment. Um, and where he could do some real damage. And the minute you win in Iowa, unlike Ted Cruz eight years ago, DeSantis is positioned to do very well in New Hampshire, where Ted Cruz simply was not, even though he won Iowa and should have emerged from that from the caucuses with a lot of momentum. Okay, let's take a second to hear from our sponsor. Do you owe back taxes? Pandemic relief is over now. Along with hiring thousands of new agents and field officers, the IRS has kicked off 2024 by sending over 5 million pay-up letters to those who have 
unfiled tax returns or balances owed. Don't waive your rights and speak with the IRS on your own. They are not your friends. Tax Network USA, a trusted tax relief firm, has saved over $1 billion in back taxes for their clients, and they can help you secure the best deal possible. Whether you owe $10,000 or $10 million, they can help you. Whether it's business or personal taxes, even if you have the means to pay or you're on a fixed income, they can help finally resolve your tax burdens once and for all. So call 1-800-245-6000 for a private free consultation or visit tnusa.com slash remnant. That's tnusa.com slash remnant. Okay, so let's take a second to hear from our sponsor, Aura Frames. Longtime listeners know I'm a big fan of Aura Frames. I've gotten them as gifts. I've given them as gifts. I sent my daughter back to college with one so she could look at many, many, many pictures of her cat and I guess her parents as well. So if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life, Aura Frames are a beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. I can attest, it is very easy to use, very intuitive. You don't have to read a lot of documentation. And it's just like you load the app and it says, what pictures do you want in your frame and you put them in your frame and you can change them and you can set the settings to whatever you want for how long the pictures stay there. It's pretty idiot proof. From grandmothers to new mothers, aunts, and even the friends in your life, every mom loves an Aura frame. Named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's AuraFrames.com. A-U-R-A Frames.com. Use the promo code REMNANT at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Okay, so what's the what's what says that it's not a two man race, and that uh, that DeSantis will fall out of the top tier, or that he will find himself one of many? Uh, what's the what's the case for that? That he's not a good candidate. He's not a good campaigner. He's not personable. Um, he has to force himself to like people, and people are going to figure that out. That he's going to take incoming from not just Trump but every other candidate in the race. It's already happening. It's been happening for months. And under the weight of that pressure, um, he's simply not going to perform. And presidential campaigns are very difficult. If you haven't done it before, it can be a shock to the system. And, and his poll numbers to date have been inflated by the, the hope and the aspirations that people have for him and their belief in who they think he is. Yeah, the blank slate. Yep. And as they get to know him, they're simply going to decide that he's just not all that likable, not all that interesting, and not all that electable. And so this is the Cruz scenario, the scenario in which the candidate who checks all the boxes and has taken the correct positions and and raised his profile and done all of that stuff, uh, the dogs don't like the dog food. And that once it, it starts happening, it's less than expected. And as you alluded to, uh, DeSantis has a problem, which is he there's a, there's a weird phenomenon that happens on the campaign trail, which is your popularity 
among the other people running for president is actually consequential. Um, so if the people you're running against really dislike you, <laughs> uh, as they, uh, run their race and exit it, they run differently toward you than they do if they admire you or have some respect for you. And I think one of the problems that DeSantis has is that the other Republicans feel pretty free about knocking him, uh, and are not, uh, are not treating him with any sort of collegial deference. Do you observe that? Well, I do. Look, I, I think that there's still, I think for Republican candidates that don't want to attack Trump for all sorts of misguided strategic reasons, they feel like they need to get the number two guy out of the way. And where have we seen that before? I actually, I, I don't necessarily quibble with your analogy, but I actually kind of like the Marco Rubio analogy better. Little Marco. Yeah. In that, you know, Marco Rubio he was in 2016, the young up and comer with a great personal story. He delivered a great speech and he was a great, he was great on the debate stage and all it took. And he was in almost every single debate that he participated in, whether he won the debate or didn't win the debate was immaterial. He performed really well and acquitted himself well. And people were impressed except for one time, one time. And it only took one time for his whole campaign to crater. And that means that there was a lot of doubt about him as a leader, as a candidate, as a future president. And when you look at candidates that win the nomination, they may not win the general election. They have plenty of missteps. There are plenty of moments, or at least a few, where you don't know if they're going to make it, where we've discovered something about their past, or they said something in the present, or they had a bad day or a bad night, and they persevere. And in part, it's because enough voters have enough faith in them that they're willing to overlook those mistakes. And I think what we really don't know about Ron DeSantis yet in particular is, has he engendered enough goodwill among Republicans inclined to support him to the end at the outset, that when the inevitable bad moments occur or the harsh attacks come, they're going to say, yeah, I mean, it was kind of rough, but I kind of like the guy and I just kind of trust him. And it, you can look at Donald Trump, Barack Obama and George W. Bush and even candidates who didn't win general elections, but won nominations. They all had these moments, but voters said, yeah, but ultimately I just think they're the best candidate for the general election and we're sticking with them. And then they're able to come back with a left hook a few minutes later and solidify and give, you know, and give voters a reason why their trust was uh, con confirmed the trust voters had in them and get through that. So we don't know yet if DeSantis has that. And I do think there is uh, an, uh, an analogy to uh, Jeb Bush and Marco Rubio with Trump and DeSantis. When I look at how much money Trump's organization is spending to attack DeSantis and the the raw emphasis that they are placing on DeSantis. It reminds me a great deal of what Jeb Bush's overfunded muscle bound organization did with Marco Rubio along the way. Uh, and it seems pretty early to me. I, I guess I think Trump, tell me what you think. I think team Trump agrees with the, uh, many in the Republican establishment and DeSantis about what the nature of the race is, 
which is that the more candidates that get in, the better it is for Trump. And under that premise, uh, you focus on DeSantis and you stay on DeSantis. But of course, the danger for Trump could be that you knock DeSantis out too early uh, and that if DeSantis goes down too soon, uh, then there's time, which of course brings us to number three. And number three is we'll call the field. Scenario one, Trump rolls. Scenario two is Ron versus Don. And then scenario three, the field. And with the field, then something happens that it's not a two-man race uh, and somebody other than Donald Trump uh, shows up and can capture the nomination. And clearly, there's some thinking moving in that direction. Uh, We saw today, we we saw last week, some toe-dipping from Glenn Youngkin. Uh, as he as he warmed to the possibility of a presidential candidacy and reporting today uh, that he is nudging the door wider to that possibility. Um, and, and we see that. So what's the case in favor of it's we don't know the we don't know who it is yet. Uh, and they're still either either not declared or they're just declaring. What's the case for that? That we're all a bunch of idiots and we've been wrong before. Oh, sure. Yeah. This checks out. <laughs> uh, right. I mean, look, you know, everybody was convinced. You know what I find ironic, Chris, is uh, eight years ago, everybody was convinced. I, I, and I, I uh, exclude myself from everybody in this case because I, I wasn't part of everybody. But eight years ago, everybody was convinced Trump couldn't win. And now everybody is convinced Trump can't lose. I know. It's crazy. I hate certainty in politics and I fear fighting the last war. And, you know, Trump uh, is Trump. He is a strong front runner who can absolutely and may absolutely win this nomination. Uh, But he is not the same Trump that he was eight years ago. Eight years ago, he was the ultimate change agent, uh, not just a disruptor, uh, but the ultimate change agent in a weird way, the ultimate fresh face in the Republican Party. And now he's a he's like an incumbent who's been around for eight years and he's a retread. He's launching his third presidential campaign in a row. We've not seen anything like that uh, for quite some time. I mean, at least not among candidates who could actually win, uh, you know, versus people looking for cable news contracts. So just deciding that that Trump's going to roll the way he's always rolled. um, I'm just not ready to do that. And if you look at the field. Look, it's possible that somebody could catch the imagination of Republican voters that he, he or she just does all the right things in all the right ways when it counts. It's still very early. We haven't had one debate. The field isn't fully formed yet. And, you know, as I try to explain to everybody, and this goes for me, you, I think as human beings, we look at poll numbers and, and we're conditioned to think of them as though they're predictive, but they're not. They're simply, you know, whatever the score is at the end of the first quarter or midway through the, the second quarter, it campaigns are like athletic events, right? I mean, if you watch a football game, you can see the score go back and forth. I've seen presidential contests where somebody starts at 5% and they win or they come in a strong second. And it's because nobody knew who they were. And then they go and they do the work And little by little, people figure out who they are, and then they have a breakout moment at at a debate, or the front runner runs into trouble, or somebody runs out of money and drops out, and and you don't have to. And so we have 
time and time again, you have to look at these poll numbers as snapshots in time, as the score of the game right now. The game is not over for quite a while. And if you don't understand that, then you look at polls and you say, oh, well, that's it then. It's it's just over. And well, it's not just over. And and so when you have enough, when you have people running for president that can raise money, attract the interest of voters and are accomplished people, there's always an opportunity. Part of it simply depends on, you know, are you who you are you authentic? Do you run a good campaign? And is that what people want at this moment in time? Yes. Um, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that in an open field, the only two in the modern era, the only two candidates uh, that ever were, um, that won all the way through or that led all the way through were the, were the consistent front runners. Uh, were Ronald Reagan in 1980 and George W. Bush in 2000. Is that right? I believe so. Um, I believe so. And look, you know, um, it's still two different scenarios, right? Ronald Reagan ha- had run for, in 1976 and come up short. Oh, well, yeah. Right. And in 1980, he's running for the second time. The Republican Party had a history of doing that for quite a while. Uh, George W. Bush was unusual. He was much more. A lot of us were trying to figure out if Ron DeSantis was the latest version of George W. Bush, who emerges as a consensus establishment favorite long before he actually announced his candidacy in the 2000 cycle and then just kind of rolls. What I think is interesting is we've seen DeSantis emerge as a consensus favorite and then slip and he's still running. You know, it's easy to get into this race when you've got nothing to lose or you're on the upswing. Um, we've watched DeSantis riding high and just getting pummeled. And he enters this race with everybody doubting him. Now, look, he's got money. He's got a lot more support in the early states than people uh, are giving him credit for. And that's based on my reporting in the early states. But still, you know, it's easy to do it when you're on your way up. Uh, and he's still doing it. So I, I kind of find that intriguing. Um the problem with so in in 2000 and oh, you can help me here in 2016 at this point we were still thinking jeb right maybe marco um in 2012 at this point who were we thinking about we would have been thinking about uh rick perry would have been thinking about Scott Walker. Mitt Romney. Who, who? Uh, no, no, 2012, we were thinking Mitt Romney and then maybe Rick Perry. And remember, the party was beginning to convulse and we saw it with Herman. Herman Cain had his moment in the sun and Newt Gingrich uh, famously predicted he was on his way to the nomination because he had his moment in the sun. Rick Santorum had his moment in the sun. Ultimately, Mitt Romney grinds it out. 2016, was interesting because before Trump gets into the race and becomes an actual candidate, he wasn't necessarily polling all that great. Now, neither, you know, I mean, Scott Walker was doing well. Ted Cruz, who ended up the runner up and went the furthest, opens the race and he's in low single digits and everybody's talking about what happened to Ted Cruz. He was supposed to be the guy. Trump gets into the race. He shoots up in the polls. He comes out of that first Fox News debate uh, saying what he said, doing what he did, stays ahead. 
And then he goes ahead and he loses Iowa. And he recovers because he wins New Hampshire before he could lose his mojo. So this is how unpredictable these things can be. And and so the the argument for it's someone else is that in the past, we have been wrong. (laughs) And uh, when I say we have been wrong, what I mean is that I, like you, try hard not to be determinative in my thinking, determinalistic uh, in my thinking. Uh, and I, I try to avoid straight line projections. Things are this way today. Uh, doesn't mean that that's the way that they'll be tomorrow. So the, the, I think one of the failures of imagination that people have when they think about these primaries and the nominating process is, the game changes as they go. And something I tell people all the time is don't pay attention to who's good. Pay attention to who gets better, right? Does Ron DeSantis, who right now seems like a a fizzle of a candidate, right? He has low wattage uh, on the trail. He seems awkward. He's not a great speech giver and all of that stuff. It doesn't matter what that is. It matters whether he improves, uh, and it doesn't matter whether Tim Scott is uh, has low name ID. It matters whether his name ID goes up. So, so watching growth and change is a lot more significant than projecting from baselines. Please agree with me. Well, no, I I, I don't disagree with you. Um, and look, I I think one of I should emphasize it's not just because you know we've all been proven to be idiots before and we over punditize and don't report enough, but. I don't even think punditize is a word, so I'm sure Jonah will get hate mail for that. I apologize. <laughs> you know, we, we fall into this in this era. We, we've, I mean, I love political analysis, but sometimes we forget you need information. So you had proper analysis. Um, I think it's possible we're overestimating Trump's strength because we are all treating him like he is who he was. And he's not. Now it's up to his competitors to take advantage of that. And they may not, and they may not be able to, they may not try, but I think that there is a soft underbelly there where there didn't use to be. And I think that's what I'm looking for. And then we get to your theory of the case, which is these men and women can get into the race and get better. They get better known. They perform better. People like them more because of what they see. And all of a sudden, they're not the same candidate that they were on day one, which is supposed to be your best day, as, as the old cliche goes. But you're actually better on day 10 and day 100 and, you know, day 300. And that makes a difference. Um, okay. So first, let's talk about the money and the organization. Uh, I have written about the case for laying down for Trump that I've heard from people in the Republican establishment that fighting Trump. Uh, only makes it worse. Um, and when I saw Steve Daines, the chairman of the National Republican Senatorial Committee, uh, come in to early endorse Trump to join Lindsey Graham, uh, uh, Henry McMaster, the governor of South Carolina, and other, uh, you know, Marsha Blackburn and other establishment figures to come out and endorse Trump. There's a pretty strong case for that. But I noted with interest that John Thune uh, came out for Tim Scott which frankly surprised me. Thune is a pretty cautious player. Uh, and seeing that was interesting. There's uh, talk a little bit about how for Republicans, the question of Trump 
uh, is significant uh, for the presidency, but it has consequences down ballot. And as if 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 you believe that Trump, so well, maybe I'll put it this way. My theory of the case is that of any of the main candidates, Trump is probably the one most likely to lose to Joe Biden. Um, but it's a non, it's, it's, uh, he might beat Joe Biden. Biden is a, is an extraordinarily weak incumbent. Uh, and the latest, every poll comes out and affirms the same thing. Americans think he's too old. They don't like his handling of the economy. They are concerned about immigration. They're concerned about inflation on and on and on. So that Trump might win, but there's also a non-zero chance that Trump might get crushed, right? <laughs> that, that Donald Trump might lose 35 states and that Joe Biden could win a 400 electoral vote victory against Trump. How does this kind of thinking play out as Republicans decide who they're going to support? Do you stand and fight Trump? Uh, do you just go along? Talk about the thinking to the people who make these kind of decisions inside the party. Yeah, look, it's all about fear. Trump rules by fear. And uh, there's one reason, and I will say I did not ask Senator Daines this, but I have no doubt it's one of those things where now I'm willing to be a pundit, but that just makes perfect sense to me. Uh, Daines didn't have to endorse Trump for his own reelection in, in Montana, which is not this cycle. Uh, and Trump wasn't coming after him. He's not some noted never Trump Republican or Trump skeptic even. Uh, Senator Daines is a a very smart politician. And I think that when you look at all of the Republicans that Trump endorsed for Senate in the 2022 cycle and how amazing they all did, which is to say they <laughs> didn't do all that amazing. It was amazing. It was, uh, it was really amazing to watch the Republicans throw away a layup shot at the Senate majority. Right. And so if you're Steve Daines and you're running the Senate committee and this Senate committee, unlike last cycle Senate committee, is going to be in the business of endorsements and meddling in primaries, which I argue every committee should do. That's why committees exist. Then you need to make friends with the guy that can make your life and ability to do that absolutely miserable. So by endorsing Trump for president, he now has Trump's ear and the ability to tell Trump, listen, you know, we're buddies. I endorsed you. I really need you to lay off so-and-so in that state. I'd really use, I could really use your help for this particular Canada, like in this state. Now, I'd also argue that Trump knows he has these uh, Republicans by, well, he knows that his, he knows that he rules by fear and that it has an impact. I didn't want to say anything crass. So these pleas will fall on deaf ears whenever he decides he doesn't care. But it's a logical move for uh, Steve Daines to, to cozy up to Trump in his quest to win a Republican Senate majority in 2024. And so when you look at all these other Republicans in Congress and around the country that have jumped on board for Trump 2024 so early, I think what they're figuring is, listen, so let's say I'm wrong. Let's say we're all wrong. These poll numbers are a big paper tiger and is not going anywhere and Trump's going to lose or, you know, maybe it goes somewhere for a while. Then he loses. I'm not worried about Ron DeSantis, Nikki Haley, Tim Scott, former Vice President Mike Pence. Pick your favorite Republican. Choose your own adventure. I'm not worried about them being vindictive, vengeful politicians that are going to 
put me in the corner with a dunce cap uh, because I didn't endorse them. But I know Trump is going to exile me to Siberia if I don't endorse him and he wins and has the power to do so. So I'll just do what's easy. Oh, and also in a Republican primary, a lot of my voters still like Trump. They haven't moved on yet. I don't want to get on their bad side either. So this is why you've seen such a movement toward Trump. Now, I will add and I will say this. Trump calls Republican members of Congress who don't matter so often. It makes them feel so important and loved. And he is a very good salesman one on one. He's not always the guy that's giving the rallies saying, you know, like, oh, my God, can you believe he said that? Or, you know, like he was on the CNN town hall. Can you believe he still thinks that? He calls these guys all the time. What do you think? What should I do? Come by. We'll have dinner. And somebody, for instance, like Ron DeSantis had not been doing that in the run up to his announcement, which we think is this week. He basically never called them because he thinks schmoozing is a big waste of time, legislation, policy, new laws. That's what matters. All of this talking, you know, as I, I spent a couple of days in Tallahassee, Chris, in April before the, the rush to get there. And I was talking to people that had worked for him and they all said, Hey, he was a really nice boss. He was a great boss. If I had family issues, if I had kid issues, like, and I had to leave the office, they were fine with it. But like, did he chit chat with you? Like, how was your weekend? You know, how are you and the wife, the husband, whatever? That's just not what he does. He's busy, you know, in his mind, getting things done. So when it came time for endorsements, people were like, you never called before. How many, how long have you been governor? Now you need something from me. And, and politicians are very sensitive to that, especially when it's like, oh, Trump's going to knife me in the front if I don't endorse him. And I don't think you'll knife me at all if I don't endorse you and you end up the president. So one of the problems, and we've heard Chris Christie talk about this and several others, but uh, Christie talked about the failure of um, governors to unite behind a governor, uh, talked about how governors failed to unite behind him as a governor uh, or, or join ranks. Um, and that that's something that you would have seen in the past, right? That when you had multiple candidates, crowded field, you would see like with like that governors would say, okay, the, and that's why positions like head of the Republican Governors Association or head of the Democratic Governors Association used to have extra swack because it gave you a, a way to start to get organized. And that uh, then when you ran, people would say, and I'm sticking with our guy. And it's interesting for me to think of this way. And this is why I think the Thune endorsement of Scott is interesting. Uh, let's, let's talk about Tim Scott for a second. Um, if Tim Scott could get not, he wouldn't need a ton, but if he could get the vouch safe of, and the closest thing to getting Mitch McConnell uh, is probably uh, getting John Thune because you're not going to get McConnell. But in terms of a signal to a donor market and to the politically obsessed and politically professional. And when I look at Scott, I also see, I see Cory Gardner over there. Uh, I see Rob Collins over there. Uh, and he chose um, the uh, Bill Haslam, former governor of Tennessee, as his national chairman. I am seeing some arrows pointing at Tim Scott uh, from uh, rich people, from people in the know, people with serious stroke politically, uh, that they think that Tim Scott's for real. Am I interpreting that correct? Yeah, I think you are. 
I mean, he's got serious people behind him. He starts with a, a decent amount of money that he raised uh, for his Senate campaigns that he did not need to spend. He's dynamic. He's interesting. He's different. Um, he could be a, a change agent. And and so he's a very he's a very interesting uh, Republican. He's also a safe Republican to endorse if you don't want to endorse Trump and you don't want to just lay off because he's not seen as an immediate threat to Trump's uh, renomination in 2024. And that goes back to Trump's embracing of the same thesis that many in the Republican firmament have had, which is we have to limit the number of people getting into the race. Trump looks at it the other way, more people into the race. So Trump feels that, you know, when, when Tim Scott announces Donald Trump says, welcome to the race. It's great. You're way better than that rotten Ron DeSanctimonious. And so uh, I, I take your point that uh, you, you brook less trouble with Trump uh, backing Scott than you would with DeSantis. Correct. Also, Tim Scott, and this is different than 2016, uh, Tim Scott's the only uh, Republican senator in the race, unless my brain is having a meltdown. So I don't think I I, I don't know of any uh, that are even potentials uh, that I'm aware of. I I can't even think of anybody who's a a maybe. I always at my advanced age and uh, with my gray hair, I always worry. But if you can endorse Tim Scott and you're not offending one of your other colleagues that you happen to like or need. Uh, so you're a Republican Senator, you know, Trump's bad news. You want to be involved. You don't want to necessarily get involved to the level that you have an open food fight with Trump. You can back a young dynamic or youngish <laughs> when our leading candidates are like old as dirt of uh, a youngish a uh, change agent in Tim Scott, who's who's likable and infectious. Everybody likes the guy, even Democrats. Uh, but you don't pick a fight with Trump in doing so. You don't offend any other Republican in doing so, uh, you know, in the Senate. Um, it's a good place uh, to go. And I wouldn't be surprised. And look, if if that scenario you and I discussed where the field overtakes Trump, maybe Tim Scott's the guy. And then, like, it's a big payday for you and a really good thing that you were a part of. Grand Canyon University makes earning your degree possible with over 130 academic programs for traditional campus students with more than 80 bachelor's programs offered online. GCU provides you with the personal support you need from complimentary unofficial transcript evaluations within 24 business hours to scholarships, academic support, and your GCU graduation team led by your own university counselor. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. Yeah. And I think one voters decide, right? Ultimately voters decide. But in this phase, we used to, there was a period of time after 2016 where the fashionable position was nothing matters anymore. Endorsements don't matter anymore. Money doesn't matter anymore. Organization doesn't matter anymore. It's just, are you, are you the right kind of demagogue? (laughs) Are you a celebrity? Uh, And is, is that how this is from now on? But Trump's behavior, Trump's own behavior suggests that he doesn't think that's true, right? Uh, I've mentioned before watching him down there with Lindsey Graham and McMaster gripping and grinning and sucking up to people to get their endorsements. 
uh, the battle over New Hampshire endorsements and Iowa endorsements with uh, with Ronnie D and all of that suggests that Trump doesn't think that's true. Uh, and he if anyone should think it's true because he was the he was the evidence of the case. Um, I, I just to stay with Tim Scott for another minute, I think part of what helps Tim Scott is Republicans are very, very sensitive to being called racists. They are extraordinary. They're, they're tired of being called racists. Uh, and they are very sensitive to this accusation. And I think part of what makes Scott a very intriguing candidate right now, he is a black man running for the presidency as a Republican, but he's not Alan Keyes, right? He's not uh, a post-racial candidate. He is explicit and intentional in talking about the role of race uh, when he talks about from cotton to Congress, when he talks about his own experiences with driving while black, when he sponsors uh, police reform legislation, when he does those things, he is he is not um, he is not avoiding the subject. He's leaning into it. And I would have to think and you are you are on the ground. You talk to people. Um, I am here. But in my ivory tower, I would have to think that for a lot of uh, the Republican electorate, it would be very satisfying for them to have a black nominee. Um, it would. And it's one of the reasons not not the reason, but it's one of the reasons they are going to give him a look. Um, I was in Iowa last August and I specifically went uh, for a Tim Scott speech. Congresswoman Ashley Hinson, who represents the Cedar Rapids area, it's a, it's a pretty large district, but Cedar Rapids is her home base. So he flew into Cedar Rapids to address a annual fundraiser she holds with for, for the you know voters show up activists. And they really like his style for the uninitiated. Tim, Tim Scott will not speak behind a podium. Um, he, he kind of moves around the stage and he has the cadence of a preacher. And he talks about uh, issues in an uplifting manner. And, he, you know, he is plenty critical of the Democratic Party and of President Biden. Uh, but he, he just doesn't have the, the angry edge to his criticism. It's more of an old school criticism that that some of us might be used to, um, and and people really like him. And I, I saw him, you know, conduct a selfie line and a handshake line for. I waited over an hour because that was the only way I was going to talk to him. So people like him, and he will get a look, and he does have money out of the gate, and 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 being a black Republican. And of real stature, look, he's a second term um, United States senator from South Carolina um, who has legislative accomplishments uh, to, to his um, record. Uh, it'll be interesting to see um, how far he can get. But clearly his background, as is often the case with any successful candidate's background, does matter and does give him an opening to be successful. He is the only candidate I am aware of who has been asked in in this cycle, perhaps ever, uh, whether he is a virgin, uh, which was uh, <laughs> which uh, a question posed to him uh, uh, yesterday on Tuesday uh, for his launch. Uh, Tim Scott is unmarried, and 
Uh, how does that does that play in? Is that something people think about or care about? Yeah, well, I, I'm not going to be asking those questions because I don't care. <laughs> yeah, well, it was it was it was not it was not a uh, it was not a fair it was not a a, dra- a draconian kind of question. Uh, <laughs> but I only I only mention it because uh, and the 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 reporters. Uh, thesis in the question was that Scott had been a abstinence advocate as a young man. They wanted to know whether he has kept that pledge uh, unmarried in his 40s. Uh, but I mean, by the way, there's a there's a movie about that. It's kind of funny. I recommend people see it. Uh, look, <laughs> put your put your bike in there. It's been since Grover Cleveland. It's been since Grover Cleveland since we had an unmarried unmarried president. Is it a factor? Well, yeah. let me dive a little deeper here. We have not we have not elected a lifelong bachelor, bachelor since James Buchanan in in, um, in 1856, the 15th president. We have not elected a childless president since 1920 with Warren G. Harding. I think it absolutely does matter. And I think it absolutely is a political vulnerability that one, he's never been married, not isn't married, but particularly never been married. And two, has never had any children. I think it's a way in which people identify with candidates. It's a way they're able to look past doubts they have. Uh, Chris, you're a parent. I'm a parent. We all kind of know how that feels and what that means. And we, we can look at people we don't like and don't agree with. And if they are parents, and particularly if they're married with children, um, we, we feel like we have some sort of kinship with them or, you know, you're really a slimy politician, but I guess you're not that bad because you got a a wife or a husband or. Yeah. These people think you're okay. Maybe you're divorced, but you've got kids. And I mean, God, we've all been there. So I think it does hurt him. And and I look, and I will say this because this is just a fact. If Tim Scott surprises uh, the naysayers and all of a sudden is threatening for the nomination, the rumor mongering yeah, about sure. his personal life to undercut him is going to be vicious and mean. Um, it it could all be untrue, and the people pushing it will not care because that's what happens in presidential contests. Are you suggesting Donald Trump would put forward uh, allegations about a person's personal life that were untrue for political gain? I don't know, David. I fake news, fake news. All right, quickly, let's go through a couple of the others. Uh, Nikki Haley, what the heck, <laughs> what the heck in the heck happened with Nikki Haley? You know, Nikki Haley may be, may have more political talent. The, she might be a better political athlete than anybody running. And she's not, in my view, putting it to its greatest use. She is, uh, happy to contrast herself with the guy in second place, Ron DeSantis, and wants no part of contrasting herself with Donald Trump, except in, in secret, not secret, but in leaked donor memos. So I'm still waiting to see how she's going to break out. But does she have political talent and the ability to connect with people? I think she does. It's just, is she going to try to do it in a way that gets Republican voters to take notice? And I think it's fair. I, I, I generally, when people say, oh, so-and-so is just running for vice president, I usually say, no, the, they're, they're running for president. Would they accept the vice presidency? Maybe, but they're not running for vice president. In her case, the criticism is made more robust, though, by just what you said. And if you're not willing to be critical in clear terms, 
around Donald Trump. I, uh, I, I noticed as a, um, there has been an increasing drumbeat. I, Kevin Kramer in the Senate and others who are, have become more vocal about not Trump. He's a loser and, and honing, uh, homing in on that until Haley, until Haley does that. I think that the, the skepticism of her candidacy will be real, right? I think so. Also, I don't think she did herself any favors with that abortion uh, policy speech that she gave, you know, just across the river from us in Alexandria at um, at the pro-life group where it was billed as a major speech. And she talks about the need for consensus and the obvious realities of not being able to pass national legislation without 60 votes. All true. And therefore, your position is, yeah, I'm not going to tell you. And that just doesn't. 20 years ago, you could give that speech, I think. And it's Voters were like, I get it. I know what she's doing. It's They don't want that now. You can't do that now. And I don't exactly know what they're doing. Uh, we wrote about this recently in, in, at the Dispatch Politics newsletter when we just called it, you know, Kill Marco Part Do. She's focused on, you know, getting rid of DeSantis. And and then what? I don't know that that what that gets her. So we'll we'll see the. The uh, the vice presidency. Well, anyway, uh, and then lastly, <laughs> on on this front, speaking speaking of uh, abortion, uh, Mike Pence uh, is looking like he's feeling pretty froggy uh, looks. And he is uh, certainly this is on an issue. Uh, I talked to Bob Vanderplatz the other day uh, and he has seem, seems like he has good vibes uh, around the former vice president. Um, is, is there a way for Mike Pence to leverage, uh, the, the deep sincerity of, uh, of trust that, uh, Christian conservatives and social conservatives have in him, uh, into a, a contender's role in this race? Well, anything's possible. Here's what I... <laughs> That's true. So, so you're so you're saying there's a chance. No, let me back out and actually say that there's going to be something very interesting about the Mike Pence candidacy that I think is coming. Uh, number one, I do think it's coming. Number number two, in his own way, but in very clear terms, he is willing to contrast himself with Trump and not just when he's asked. In other words, he's willing to say, "Yeah, there's this other guy leading, but here's why I'm better." And that's something that the only other Republican I've seen shown inkling, shown a willingness to do that is, is Governor DeSantis. Uh, number three, you know, there are a lot of Republicans that come up to me and, and Democrats for that matter, although that's kind of funny when they do it. And they're like, what, what happened to the old Republican Party? You know, the one that was for smaller government and, and the one that wanted to cut spending and believed in fiscal responsibility and was an internationalist oriented party on foreign policy. We need them. What happened to them? Well, Mike Pence is going to give it a shot. He is going to run unapologetically as a, it's not really fair to say a Reagan era Republican, but as the kind of Republican that was prevalent in the party through the 2016 primary that just, you know, none of them won in 2016. And the three-legged stool. Yes. And he's not mincing words when it comes to his position on abortion rights. And so- Republicans are going to have a chance to vote for somebody like that in Mike Pence. He does have a really interesting story to tell. And, you know, I, when you look at polling after DeSantis, Pence actually is the third guy people say they're for. I mean, granted, it's single digits, but 
better than Haley, who's already a candidate, better than Tim Scott, who's been, you know, running around the country for a couple of months. So I don't want to write him off. And I do think there's an interesting experiment to occur with a Mike Pence candidacy, and I will be covering him and watching him uh, for those reasons. So there you have it, America. Three scenarios for the Republican presidential nominating contest. Trump rolls, Ron versus Don, or the field. David Drucker has told you why they can all be true, why they all cannot be true. Uh, And I will just remind you of what uh, my old boss, uh, the great Bill Salmon, used to say to me when we were having these kinds of conversations, uh, which is... I can tell you why none of them can win, and yet one of them will. <laughs> so, uh, we, David Drucker, we could ask for no better guide in this. I hope everyone listening uh, is subscribed f- to the Dispatch Politics Note. I hope everybody is following your stuff. You are really indispensable in this. And uh, remind me the name of your book. In Trump's Shadow, The Battle for 2024 and the Future of the GOP. It's a good read, uh, and I like the jacket blurbs particularly. They, they were good. <laughs> David Drucker, uh, you are a gem. You are my friend. And I really appreciate you making time for us. Thank you. Chris Darwell, back at you. Thanks so much for having me. This was a blast. Well, gentle listeners, I am very glad for my time with you today. But I'm also very glad to say that Jonah is on the mend and will return uh, here to the bridge of the SS Remnant Uh, to guide you through the stormy seas of politics, but it's been great hanging out with you. So I guess all I could say is we'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is my podcast. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.